our ninth message in the series I have entitled Signposts in the Heavens. If you've been with us for our study, then you know it began back in chapter 12 as the ultimate purposes of Satan were disclosed to us. We know back from chapter 12 that Satan is bent on the destruction of the power and promises of God concerning salvation. Satan is a God-hater. He has been that ever since he fell from grace and raised himself up as being one who would be like God. He desires to be God. Satan wants to be worshipped. He wants to steal the glory of God for himself. And so he's bent on destroying any promise that God has ever made and he desires to annihilate those through whom and to whom those promises have been made. That means that Satan hates Christ. Satan is a Christ hater. Satan is a hater of Israel. And Satan hates you and I. Satan hates God. Satan hates the one through whom the gospel has come. And Satan hates all of those to whom the gospel has come. And therefore, he hates you and I. And he hates anyone whom God has chosen to save. Satan has tempted throughout history to thwart God's plan from the beginning. And he introduced to Adam and Eve the deceptive destruction of doubting God. Doubting what God said. Doubting what God has promised and he attempted throughout history to permanently destroy any vestige of God's promise through killing Christ. He chose to seek after the extermination of the Jews. Why? Because it's through the Jewish people that Christ came into the world. And it is also through the Jews that you and I know the promise of salvation in Christ. So it is to the Jewish people that God made his promise through Abraham found back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would give them a land, that they would be a people, that he would make them a great nation, that they in fact would have a king on the throne forever and ever and ever. And none of those promises have been finally and fully fulfilled. Not one. But the day is coming. After the tribulation, when those promises will be fulfilled, and they will be finally and fully fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ, as He reigns upon the earth for a thousand years, as Christ rules in Jerusalem over all the earth, and the Jews will see their Messiah, in whom they have pierced, and they will follow after Him, just like we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 2. If you want to know what rulership will be like in the millennial kingdom look at isaiah chapter 2 as christ rules in zion over the people of israel and all nations go there and there is no war during that time and so god is going to fulfill his promise god's promise is still intact and yet satan is constantly working to nullify that promise All the promises of God, Satan desires to nullify. Satan desires to get rid of them. He desires to get rid of God and to nullify God. 
so that he might, in fact, be worshipped. And so in our study of Revelation chapter 12, we were taken back through history. The history so that we might see the ultimate purpose of Satan disclosed, his antagonism toward God and toward the nation of Israel. And so we saw this signpost in heaven of a woman, and we saw the signpost in heaven of this great dragon who is in pursuit of the woman and pursuit of the male child that the woman would give birth to, knowing that that was Jesus Christ who came through the nation of Israel. And we saw these signposts in heaven of the angelic being, Michael, and the other angels fighting against Satan and his angels, finally throwing them out of heaven itself only to throw them down to the earth in which they were enraged and are now after the woman with greater rage. So there's constant hatred against Israel, constant hatred against Jesus Christ. And then we came to chapter 13 and the puppets of Satan are described. They're described for us in primarily two agents and they are called beasts. One from the general sea of humanity to rise up as a political ruler and the other, I believe, from the sea or from the earth, which is Israel, this Jewish ruler who would be a religious ruler and an endorser of the first beast. Both of these are satanic agents. Both have their source of power and authority in Satan himself. During the second half of the tribulation period, they will be at the forefront of the world scene. They will be the ones through whom the world sees power. And they'll accomplish world rule. It's hard for us to even fathom that since we have nations in the world and each nation has a king. Each nation has some kind of rulership over it. And so it's hard for us to even fathom this one world rulership and this one world religion. But they will establish a world rule. They will establish a worldwide religion. And through both of those realities will come a one world economic system. We saw that in Revelation 13 and verse 17. As the dragon, as the, or as the beast, I should say, cause those who worship him to have this mark in their forehead or on their hand. And through that, they buy and sell. There is economics that take place in the cashless society in which is coming in its full-fledged way. It's going to be a dismal time upon the earth during the tribulation. It will be days of judgment, days of terror like none other. But, just like the darkness that comes with the storm, so too bright light shines after the passing of the storm. And while the dark purposes of Satan have been disclosed in chapter 12, and the ruthless and destructive puppets of Satan are doing their bidding and in carrying out their activity in chapter 13. Now we come to chapter 14. Chapter 14, the bright light of the glory of God shines as Satan's power is vanquished. This is a a wonderful chapter. Satan's power is now shown to be defeated. We've been waiting for this for a long time. We'll, We'll see the ultimate end of it come in the final chapters of Revelation. But here we're getting this this bird's eye view, if you will. Satan's power is finally vanquished. Christ is 
on the throne. And here's how John records it for us in chapter 14. And I want to read the entire chapter just so we get a flavor for all that is happening. John says, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. They saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. We needed to hear the continuous reading of those verses because 
This is a heavenly glimpse at the inauguration of the millennial kingdom. And within that, there are seven pictures here that John describes for us or that John is seeing. This is the millennial kingdom coming into action. And these pictures here emphasize for us the ultimate deliverance of tribulation saints and the ultimate destruction of those who identify with the Antichrist and the false prophet. And ultimately, there is the destruction of anyone who ultimately is identifying with Satan himself, which is tantamount to identifying with the false prophet and the Antichrist. So you remember as we begin that in the current place in our study of this entire book of Revelation, we are still in this interlude period, this period from chapter 12 through chapter 15, and you could almost think of it as a a mini commentary, if you will, on the entire book of Revelation. God has been showing John and also to us what is happening behind the scenes. What's taking place on the earth. So chronologically, in your own thinking, in your own thoughts about Revelation, you're not going to pick up in the action again of the tribulation itself until chapter 16 when the bold judgments begin to be poured out. Remember, the seventh trumpet contains the seven bold judgments. And while we've already seen in chapter 11 the seventh trumpet sounded, the stage was set for these judgments to come, and in doing that, God has stepped us back, if you will, for this bigger picture, to look at what's going on behind all that is happening on the earth. And so to be perfectly clear, all that we have seen already, as I was thinking about this, it only makes the suffering and the dying that is happening on the earth under the judgments of God and all that is being allowed to come by way of the puppets of Satan, it only makes all of that even more dark and more disheartening. It only makes it more discouraging, more crushing. It only makes the need for reassurance that God's plan is still intact even more necessary. I mean, John is watching all of this unfold with amazement. And John has seen all the dark days of judgment to come. And he's seen the history of Satan's attacks upon Israel and, and carrying that thing out all the way into the tribulation and, and the darkness of all of that, the judgment of all of that, and he's got this bird's eye view. And I don't know about you, but in the midst of all of this great difficulty, even in your own life, in the midst of difficulties, there are times when we need reassurance. There are times in my own life when difficulty is happening that I need the reassurance of God that His plan is still intact. And if by way of comparison, my little life's difficulties that I go through in life, if I need in those dark times and I wonder what's taking place and I need the the reassurance of God in my own life, I, I can only imagine the reassurance that those who walk through the tribulation will need. John gets... Some of that here in chapter 14, the reassurance is given to him. It's given to him so that both he and we might know and understand that no matter how bleak the conditions may get, no matter how 
hard it may get under the Antichrist rule for those in the tribulation, they would know that the ultimate victory of the Lamb and of the saints is guaranteed. And that the ultimate doom of the followers of the Antichrist of Satan himself is certain. So there are seven pictures here that describe the conditions as Christ begins to rule upon the earth. So this is near the end. The end of the tribulation. This is the description of the beginning of the millennial kingdom. We're going to see the millennial kingdom, by the way. We're going to see it again, but that doesn't come until later in chapter 20. And we'll see it only briefly where Satan is bound for a thousand years and Christ resumes his rightful rule upon the earth. But we get a glimpse of all of that before it actually happens here in chapter 14. So let me just list these seven pictures for you. And then we'll begin to unfold them together today. And just so you know, leave space after the first one because that's all we're going to get to. So here are the seven pictures. First is the pro- or the presentation of God's witnesses. The presentation of God's witnesses in verses 1 through 5. Two is the preaching of God's word. The preaching of God's word in verses 6 and 7. Third, the destruction of the apostate church, verse 8. So you have the presentation of God's witnesses, the preaching of God's word, the destruction of the apostate church, number four, a little longer in title, the reality of doom for antichrist worshipers, and the reality of blessing for Christ worshipers. You have both sides of those, the doom for the Antichrist worshipers and the blessing for those who are worshipers of Christ, verses 12, or I mean 9 through 11. Number five, you have the assurance of tribulation saints. The assurance of tribulation saints, verses 12 and 13. Number six is the gathering of tribulation saints under the great reaper Christ, verses 14 through 16 and then last is the destruction of the tribulation ain'ts they're not saints they're ain'ts verses 17 to 20 the unbelievers the destruction of the tribulation unbelievers those who have linked themselves with the antichrist so those are the seven pictures that we're going to see in chapter 14 as we move along Let's just begin with this first picture in verses 1 through 5. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name on, and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no one... And no lie was found in their mouth. They are 
blameless. This is an amazing group of Christians. Nothing could be better, I think, than a Christian on fire for Christ, right? Nothing could be better than one Christian sold out for Jesus Christ in everything he does. And all of these have faced the fierce torment of Satan himself. And by God's preserving power, by God's gracious sovereignty, they have come through it all. And they have come through it all unscathed. We know this to be the beginning of the millennial kingdom because Christ is now on earth. Notice John says, and I looked and behold, the Lamb. John seems a a bit startled by what he sees. He he seems a bit surprised at, at what is taking place. It's as if there is some shock in his voice because he sees... Not a beast now, what he sees in stark contrast is the lamb. Anytime you see the word behold in scripture, it's, it's that, hey, look, pay attention word. It's, uh, I looked and whoa, this is what was there. The lamb was there. Notice this is the lamb. This is not just a lamb. This is the lamb. Any other lamb is a counterfeit. So this is, Christ's return. This is Christ now having come to the earth. He is standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion, verse 1 says. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 wrote about Mount Zion. And from the days of King David, it was the center point of all the rule in Israel. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7 in the Old Testament calls it the city of David. It is the city of David. In fact, just listen how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 48. Listen to this description about Mount Zion, about the place where Christ is going to rule from. God is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. And as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling they took, trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shatter the ships of Tarshish. And we have heard, so we have seen in the city of our Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which which God will establish forever. Zion, the city of God, the city of our Lord, the city of the great King, the psalmist calls it. Is it any wonder that the psalmist would later say in that psalm, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. Rejoice because it's God who rules on the scene. Let Mount Zion be glad, he says. It's any wonder that all the nations will flock to that place to worship the great King, Christ Himself. And so here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, we see Christ, the Lamb, standing in Mount Zion, the city from which Christ will rule on earth. And John sees Christ standing there and he sees with him this group of triumphant saints. 
By the way, this isn't the first time that we've seen this group of 144,000. If you go back to chapter 7, that's where we first saw them. In fact, go back just a, uh, one verse farther than chapter 7. You notice in chapter 6, the, the sealed judgments were unfolded, right? They were broken. This is the first judgments of God during the tribulation. There was deception that began, war, famine, uh, disease, death, all of that broke out upon the earth. Many were martyred, even at a global level, there was martyrdom taking place all over. And notice verse 17 in chapter 6 says, "For, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It is so bad, it is so destructive, it is so horrific, it is so deadly. Who could live through all of this? Who could actually get through it all? I mean, this is just the seal judgments that that we're in here in chapter 6 and 7. In the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments, which we have already seen in our study, but at this point they are yet to come. And in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls of judgment that will come in rapid-fire fashion beginning in chapter 16. So the worst is yet to come. Who is able to stand and endure it all? There's already been earthquakes. There's been plagues. There's... More than a third of the earth's population has been killed. The Antichrist is already deceiving and apostate religion is being formed and growing in the hearts of sinful men. Christians are being killed. Jews are being pursued and killed. And then God, in order to give John a breather, in order to give all of us a breather in the the rapid judgments to come, In chapter 7, we get the question answered that verse 17 of chapter 6 asks. Who is able to stand? You get the answer here in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There, in chapter 7 and verse 4, you have God saying that He protects His own. Certainly, these aren't the only ones. Certainly, this isn't all there is that is protected by God through the tribulation. There will also be other people of the world saved. Others who will, in fact, even survive. And they, too, will enter into the kingdom of God, Matthew 25 tells us, but most of the believers will die as martyrs. Many of the Jews will die as unbelieving Jews. Some will die as martyrs because they have come to faith in the gospel. Many will survive, and here in chapter 14 is one specific group. Or I should say chapter 7 is this group 
this group preserved complete, preserved by God, who will be able to stand? I'll tell you who will be able to stand. These 144,000 will be able to stand. 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, they will be evangelists across the face of the earth. They will be sharers of the gospel. Why? Because they've been marked as belonging to God. They have been marked off by God, just like the followers of the beast have been marked off. So too, these 144,000 have their own mark. Go back to chapter 14. We see that very reality. I love what it says to us. I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name, and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Satan has marked out his own, and so does God. These have been redeemed, set apart for God's use. God says, this is mine. You can't touch what is mine. I know we're speaking of the tribulation here. I know we're talking about this heinous seven-year period at the end, right before Christ returns from the earth. But, but don't these words bring comfort to you? Doesn't the reality of this very truth bring comfort to your very soul? The Bible tells us that we have been bought with a price as Christians. We have been bought by God with a price. We have been chosen by God. Bible tells us that we have been sealed by God through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The Bible tells us that God is the Almighty and all that the Father has given to the Son, that He loses none. To know Christ is to know God. And to know God is to know eternal life, John 17 tells us. What a comfort. What a reassurance to us and to John. What a comfort for us that no matter how dismal life may seem, no matter how troublesome life may get, no matter how dark it may seem, even during the tribulation time, whatever the future holds, God loses none. God loses none. So here, God says He's marked out His or these 144,000, these tribulation saints. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad when you read the Bible that God is so specific that it doesn't say in chapter 7 and he marked out 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe and then you get to chapter 14 and it says here's Christ standing on Mount Zion and 138,962 were there. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? Satan won, if that was the case. God's not as powerful as He says, but here God is so specific. God tells us exactly what He wants us to know because that is the truth of God. He is the all-powerful God. And here with the Lamb of God is the 144,000 that God chose and marked off. Not one was lost. Who could stand? Chapter 6, verse 17. These 144,000 could stand. Why? Because God causes them to stand. God has not lost any of His own. And all of these are standing with Christ in the kingdom so that they might evangelize the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. 
These are messengers of God. And notice they are filled with praise. They are filled with praise. Verse 2 and 3 says, And I heard a voice from heaven like a sound of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on harps. Uh, I've heard the harp, the sound of a harp before, and the sound of many harps is very, very loud. Especially when it's continually strummed. And that's what I'm thinking is going on here. There's just these sounds, these indescribable sounds coming from heaven as John begins to see what is taking place. And verse 3 says, They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the messengers of God, and they are filled with the praise of God. Upon entering the millennial kingdom, the first thing they do is give praise to God. I love that. In fact, they sing a song that only they have the ability to sing. The word here for... They sang a new song before the throne before the, that no one could learn. The word for learn in the original is the word dunamai. Dunamai is obviously translated many places power. Some people try to tell you that's where we get the word dynamite from, but I don't believe that. It's normally translated power, but here this power carries the idea of not power by way of dynamic, but ability. They have the ability. They it's not authority, it's ability. It's not that they're the only ones who could have authority to sing this song, but they're the only ones who have the ability to sing this song. You say, why? Why are they the only ones with the ability to sing this new song as they enter into the millennial kingdom? And I believe the answer is simple. The answer is this. This is a unique group of believers who have been preserved through the tribulation. And because it's only them in this group, they have, they're the only ones who have experienced that. They're the only ones who have gone through this tribulation, through this time, in this way, in which they've been preserved by God so that they are the ones who are there at this time, and it's only them who are able to sing this unique song of redemption. No one else could sing it. No one else went through it. No one else lived their collective experience. No one else, therefore, was able to sing the song they can sing. The elders aren't singing it. That's the church. The four living creatures aren't singing it. Anyone else there before the throne, they're not singing it. They didn't live that experience out. These are the 144,000 who lived that. They're, they're, they're singing this song and They're the only ones who can. They're the only ones who are able to sing the song. By the way, singing is taking place all through our study of Revelation. Worship, praise, singing. The elders have been singing. The living creatures have been singing. The angelic hosts have been singing. 
And all of it is in praise for God's glorious redemption of those who are His. We're singing a a song of praise for our redemption and how God has redeemed us. The angelic beings are singing a song of redemption as they have been confirmed in their holiness, never having been redeemed from fallenness. And the four living creatures are, are praising God for His redemption of people. And these two are singing a song of redemption to God in the way in which God has miraculously redeemed them. And so this group joins that heavenly chorus that's taking place. The music is loud. The singing is loud. Why? Because we've all been redeemed. There's no greater praise in the heavenlies than the redemption of Jesus Christ. And these have been purchased, notice, from the earth. Christ has paid the price of their redemption just like us. Just like all who will ever believe, Christ is the reason for the redemption. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, it really doesn't matter. We're all redeemed by Christ. So these are the messengers of God. They are filled with the praise of God. And then the text tells us that they reflect the character of God. They are the messengers of God. They are filled with the praise of God. And here then we see they reflect the very character of God. Verse 4 says, first of all, they reflect the individual purity in their life. They are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. This is purity in life. That's what John's seeing here. This is purity in who they are. Don't take this to mean that he's championing singleness here. He's not trying to say, hey, listen, all the people who aren't married, who have never been defiled in some kind of marriage relationship or otherwise, are those of these men who, because they're not defiled with women in that way. He's talking about purity in life because the, the point here is spiritual purity. They're, they're the character of Christ, the character of God. There is a purity in them spiritually. Think about it. They've just come through religious apostasy in a very rampant way, religion that is filled with every kind of lustful and sexual impurity. You say, well, how do you know that's the the kind of religion that's filling the earth under the Antichrist and the false prophet? Well, look at verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. That's the apostate church. That's the false religion in the world, the passion of our immorality. Most false religions, if not all false religions, have a bent upon some kind of immorality. Or at least allowing immorality to take place unchecked. So here, John sees their chasteness, their spiritual purity. They haven't been defiled by the spiritual impurity that's rampant in the world. They didn't follow after the things of the world. They remained pure in their own spiritual lives. So they reflect God's character. They reflect His purity. Secondly, they reflect spiritual commitment. Spiritual commitment. Notice what he says. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We could say it this way. They have no rivals in their heart. There's no duplicity in their 
heart as to who they are following. They're not serving God and something else. The impossibility of that in the life. There's, there's none of that going on with them. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are fully committed to Christ in all things. We said it in our own vernacular today. We'd say we are sold out. They're sold out for Christ. They're, they're like their master who called them. Jesus Christ followed the will of the Father. He did that without question. Jesus commands us to follow Him. Without question, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when it doesn't seem humanly logical. In fact, this is a very basic characteristic to our very Christianity. Jesus says in John 13, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this is part and parcel to who we are. This commitment to Jesus Christ, this full obedience to Christ, and full obedience to Christ produces in those who are obedient to Christ, purity of life. And I think here in verse 4, the reason that John sees that first characteristic of purity in them is because of the second characteristic of following the Lamb wherever He goes. How in the world could they ever be defiled with anything in that apostate religion when they're following Christ wherever He goes in fact in our study of first john in the evening we're going to learn in first john chapter 3 verse 3 john says everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure you say what hope is that it's the hope of eternal life everyone who has this hope of eternal life fixed on christ purifies himself as Christ is pure. Jesus said, you be pure as your Father in heaven is pure. So these had that hope. They knew Christ. They followed Christ. They had the hope of eternal life and they followed Christ and they're fully committed to Christ. And that hope fixed on him produced purity spiritually and purity in practice. They followed him wherever he went. Notice that is a ongoing reality of their life. This was who they were habitually. They followed him every detail wherever he went. So they had a purity in life and a commitment to follow Christ in everything they did. And lastly, they were characterized by truth. They were characterized by truth, characterized by purity, characterized by commitment to Christ, and characterized by truth. Notice, these have been purchased from among the men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This is truth. No lie is of the truth, Jesus said. The whole world during the tribulation is headlong in lies and deception. There is lies around every corner, lies under everything that is said, but not these men. There is no lie with them. What they speak is truth. What they speak is the Word of God. They are blameless. 
When they speak the Word of God, they will be accurate about the Word of God. They will not equivocate on the truth of the Word of God. They will tell people what God means by what God says, and they will not waver in what they say because they are blameless. There is no lie found in their mouth. And certainly, this is another example to us, isn't it? As Christians, even today, we are called by God to speak truth. Bible continually warns us about lies in conversation. In fact, Ephesians 4 says we are to speak truth in love. Love and truth are inseparable. To really love is to speak truth. Whenever these speak, they are actually loving those around them by speaking what God says, by saying what the truth says. As Christians, truth is, it's not what we do, it's who we are. We, we are been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the personification of truth. He is the character of God in human flesh. We are enveloped in Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. We speak truth, and when we speak truth, we are loving one another. So we are. When we do that, we will be like these here, these saints of God in the tribulation. We, too, will be like them. We are blameless. Blameless. It's not that they've earned some sense of righteousness before God by their activity. It's that their character in activity is being carried out because they've been chosen by God, set apart by God, purchased by God, and are now living as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. It just simply means there's going to be others that come after them like that who know Christ. They're not the only ones. So these are sanctified, godly people, saints. And so John is seeing and being reassured here in his own understanding of all that's taking place in the tribulation that it's not going to be complete destruction. There are these who are set apart and now he sees them again as preserved saints who have gone through the tribulation and are now standing in the millennial kingdom with Christ to do what Christ has asked them to do yet in the millennial kingdom and that is to preach, speak truth. And they stand triumphant. They stand as God's messenger. They stand as an example and a picture to all of us. What it's like to be a spiritual overcomer. What it's like to be one who has been chosen by God, set apart for God's work in the kingdom work, in the time frame in which we live, to do what God does, to be fully committed to God, to have that pure life and to live out that life in a blameless way so that others might know God. When Christ comes to rule, the gospel will be going forth in a big way. And so you have these messengers of God presented to us. There isn't enough time to get into the next one, but I just want to mention how unfathomable it will be to be able to look into the skies and see flying in the mid heavens an angel who is proclaiming the gospel of God to all the earth. And you say, well, how will, the, how will people hear the gospel who are in remote locations who, who anybody go there? I'll tell you how. God's sending an angel to tell them the truth, and they'll hear it clearly. God's going to have his messengers. John is reassured that the saints will be saved. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that reassuring to you? God knows those who are his own. 
God has marked them off and God is bringing them through. And they're faithful. Well, we'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. It's time just briefly in your word to discover and uncover all that's taking place during your rule and reign. We know it in words, Lord, that your promises are true and sometimes we want to see it and you graciously have given us a a glimpse into that. This isn't fantasy. It's not make-believe. It's not some story dreamed up by men. This is the future. This is what is to come. And there will be those who reject the truth, maybe even today, who will be part of this judgment time. We pray that they would not reject the gospel completely. We pray that eyes would be opened, for we know that your word tells us that those who take that mark, those who receive it, will face the fierce wrath of your judgment. Lord, were it not for your grace, we would continue to reject you, and yet through your grace we know you by Christ. It's unbelievable. So thank you for the glimpse into these things that we might be motivated today tell others about these things and to help them understand what is to come if they reject Jesus Christ. We know that all men stand in that place of rejection and so we pray that you would open their eyes to the truth, that it would penetrate their soul, that they might know you and know real life. So thank you for your word. Thank you for how it penetrates us deep within. Use these things in our lives each moment of every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.